Welcome to the third entry in my Life and Times of Video Games interview series on the people and processes behind games history. This time around, I speak to Phil Salvador, a librarian, critic, and blogger who runs The Obscuratory, a blog dedicated to discussing and exploring games unplayed and unknown. I've been reading The Obscuratory for years now, and I love the effort that Phil puts into finding weird or obscure or forgotten games and writing in-depth articles about them. And given the many places where our interests intersect, I'm not at all surprised that when we caught up around a month ago in late February, before all of this coronavirus pandemic really took hold in the West, we ended up talking for two hours about a wide range of topics within the realms of games history, preservation, and criticism, and about the importance of being kind. So without further ado, here's our full discussion, trimmed down and lightly edited, to clear out some awkward pauses, some interruptions, and a bit of the umming and ahhing along the way. Enjoy. Yeah, cool. So yeah, what, what, what is it that draws you to these games that most people don't know about? I, I think a lot of it started out, I mean, as a lot of these kind of things do from nostalgia, from, you know, when I was much younger, I had a Macintosh, and I tended to, you know, play a lot of things on that. And we usually had a lot of uh, adventure type games that we got from the library or from, you know, other similar places. My parents always encouraged me to, like, play nonviolent games and so forth. <laughs> uh, and I think... You know, obviously, once you get a certain age, you start thinking back to like things you played as a kid and, you know, that kind of nostalgic impulse. But I think what was interesting was slowly realizing that a lot of the things I played growing up were not what a lot of people were. And it wasn't so much the fixation on specific games as much as it was realizing that there was such an enormous catalog of games that generally were not getting attention. I think especially as games like started to want to gain legitimacy in like the mid 2000s when there was more focus on like you know games are art and trying to argue with Roger Ebert and things like that i think there was a tendency to sort of boil games down to like a much more narrow timeline where it's like atari nintendo sega etc and you have a couple big games and it, i think it was coming to realization that that narrative was so extremely constructed and that there were so many other games outside what existed like that and just realizing that you know what I'm, I think I'm more interested in some of the other stuff we have not focused on. And again, it started mm -hmm. out because it was like, you know, what do you mean you've never heard of the Journeyman Project? It was like a game I greatly enjoyed <laughs> growing up. But, you know, as, as time went on, it was like, oh, there's like, there's a thousand games like the Journeyman Project I have not heard of either. Like, why are we not mm -hmm. talking about those two? And also okay. just from, from talking with friends, kind of realizing that everyone had a game like that. I mean, not necessarily like something that you were, you know, nostalgic for as a kid, but that everyone has despite, you know, coming up with these, like, sort of mythological, like, oh, Final Fantasy is like a game everyone plays, like, everyone has played such a variety of things that, like, we all have a couple things that we realize other people have not known about that, that are still genuinely interesting or exciting and ju just kind of, you know, what would happen if we focused more on all of that collectively? Mm. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, idea. And it's a... Uh... Hearing you talk about it, I can really relate because, as you know, I, I, I wrote a book about a whole lot of games that most people have never heard of, <laughs> <laughs> an entire platform on the Mac. Um, and it was the same for me, I, growing up playing these really cool games and and then realizing as I got older that, yeah, most of these games, they were only on the Mac and most people have no idea what they are, even well-known stuff like Marathon and Pathways into Darkness on the Mac side is actually pretty obscure to your, your average gamer. 
Yeah. And I think, uh, especially again, as I, you know, started to look in further and further scopes, I wasn't sure about it's, it's interesting to see how many other like sub communities exist that again, like we just don't know or hear about. Um, like, you know, something like the Amiga, which was not as big of a deal in the United States. It is fascinating to see, you know, what a large scene it had in Europe. Um, there is a particular game I just wrote about that was developed in, I think, Hungary and just seeing like what like the Eastern European scene for developing games was. I think. As you start to look out a little further than what's, you know, in the typical narrative of, you know, what games are and what game history is, you also start to incorporate more perspectives like that, like more international perspective, uh, you know, marginalized folks who sometimes aren't included in the, like, you know, big air quotes, traditional version of game history. Um, that's why I love the work by, like, uh, Carlin Kasurik, who's doing a study on uh, the girl game movement and, like, Purple Moon and all the games in the 90s that were, you know, designed specifically for girls. And you know, thinking about like the degree to which that is not when we talk about you know what are games like that that is often isn't captured. And I think a lot of it is because that's not what the people who are writing the histories are familiar with necessarily. So I love mm. seeing what else you know matters in like these other sub communities. Um, even things like uh, you know RPG maker games like that is not a world I was involved in at all. There is so much there that is fascinating that matters a lot to the people who experienced it, and. You know, I think we throw a lot of that stuff by the wayside. But yeah, like whether it's like, you know, a weird shareware game for Macintosh or like, you know, whatever was going on in the Neopets community or something like there's all these pockets that really did matter to people. I think it's interesting to try to expand our definition of like what we're looking at to include those kind of things. Mm. Yeah. And I actually, you've just touched on something that I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, which is um, how uh, the really obscure unknown games that that come from these these little pockets all around the world or little communities they do matter and and they matter because they mattered to somebody whether it's just the person making it or there's a whole community of people who loved it or mm. just or there's some really compelling cool idea that never got properly explored yeah absolutely i mean Talking especially, I mean, we could talk about like what it mattered to like the creators of games. Like, there's a whole just so much there. The people who like flitted in and out of the industry, who like you know tried making a game, their studio wasn't super successful. Like, there's so many stories, but especially in terms of people who played them, I think that's something that's not really represented a lot. Um, I think as we there's been more and more focus on the history of like online games and online communities and some of those big lingering questions about like how you preserve an online game. I think it's really interesting to look at the folks who did play those things um, and just how they interacted, how it was a part of their lives. Uh, one of the games I wrote about, uh, I think it was like two years ago at this point was an old, it was like a, a freeware uh, shooter game called control monger that was just online for you know a little bit. Wasn't super successful since posting an article about it, there have been comments left in the article from people who are like, oh yeah, I play this game all the time and like list all the different maps they played that of course just don't exist online anymore because the communities have long since shut down. And it, it is interesting that like when you start to you know talk about the other stuff that's not necessarily just kind of the big names, you get all these very specific like hyper community histories and like the, yeah, it, things mattered to people. I think it's worth, you know, celebrating that i think it, on the one hand it's worth looking at some older games in a new context in a new light but also yeah like you know, these games i keep repeating what you said but they did matter to people people's experiences mm. with these things are valid and i think it's worth celebrating that too yeah 
as I was thinking about this stuff and preparing for this this interview earlier, I I came back to actually something that I wrote several years ago. It was an old opinion piece, just this little call to arms I wrote called Bring On the Old and Obscure. <laughs> and then thinking about how the obscuratory is kind of, is in large part what I was asking for. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> how I was talking about how, uh, let me say, old games give us a window into ideas gone by. They were to see some mechanics that died out when others prospered. They expose us to concepts that were overlooked or they were ahead of their time. They give us perspective. They teach us things about the medium, about ourselves, about the world that could have been, which I think is another interesting idea, the alternative timelines that, that they offer for where games could have gone. Oh, yeah. And I, I kind of likened it to crate digging that that uh, like hip hop artists will do when they're they're trying to come up with new beats and saying we need to do more of this in games. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see. Yeah, the stuff that was, I think in a lot. I don't want to like paint all game design with a broad brush, but I feel like there is especially it's become easier to have sort of like codified skills on like how you're supposed to make pixel art, how level design is supposed to work, how you are supposed to balance a game. And it is fascinating to go back to games that existed when either certain rules weren't as established or the people making them just didn't really know or particularly care about what those rules were and just seeing mm. what they did. So yeah, things where it was like people trying new mechanics that maybe didn't make a whole lot of sense or weren't very well executed, but are exciting to go back to. It's And yet you see that in you know independent games, of course, too, but it's exciting to go back and see like a commercial product that was like published in a box and was sold in stores that is trying some totally outlandish idea that it is it's still unclear how they managed to get funding to do it i think that's super exciting uh there's a really great project i love called the bad game hall of fame uh by a person named cassidy and they have been going back to a bunch of critically maligned games and revisiting them from a perspective of like history but also a critical angle and just looking at it from like people did not like this game what's interesting about it what are the abrasive qualities of it that are interesting to look at it's I just it's so worth doing those kind of things again like you said just to see like I like the alternate history idea I like being able to look back at things and think about like a specific game isn't coming to mind but like something that was like civilization that was not good and looking at that and saying like what if this was the game that caught on uh, I think it's easy to go back to some early landmark games and say you know they're not the greatest things in the world and you know they have a lot of issues that would get ironed out over five iterations but what if some of these other games had five iterations too what if there was you know uh i've not played it but there is a game uh called destiny that apparently is like civilization and the one of the few reviews on moby games says it is the worst designed game in history (laughs) i'm so excited to try that out but like what if destiny was really successful and we were on like destiny six now and just looking mm. like the ways that those little changes and how they approach that kind of game would have amplified. Yeah, I like that. I like the uh, concept to approaching it. Yeah, and actually uh, an example I can think of is uh, an old Mac game called The Colony, which you've probably heard of, um, mm. made by this one guy. And it's a fascinating game several years before id Software were doing stuff with uh, like raycasting and things. It was already doing it in black and white. And it was it was a first-person shooter, but it absolutely was not like anything that followed because it was more of an adventure game. And 
what really brought it down, what stopped it from being a big hit, was it was just so excruciatingly hard. <laughs> it would kill you. It would kill you for the pettiest little things. Like you, you try and smoke a cigarette in the game, you die. You turn on the wrong switch, you die. You, you forget to close the airlock, you die. I mean, that that's probably realistic, but it doesn't give you any feedback on on why you've died. You just die all the time. So it's even more evil than the Sierra games from the era. Oh my <laughs> and it's this really cool game, though. So if you play it with cheats on, so you give yourself infinite health. And then that way you only die for the super petty reasons and you just got to save a lot. <laughs> then it's really fascinating. And it shows this other path that that shooters could have gone down that was much more cerebral. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I, I think it kind of speaks to like some of the, I guess one of the things I thought about a lot doing the Obscuratory is kind of the arbitrary ways that genres have formed. Uh, because a lot of the stuff you're describing, like you see that kind of like, you know, excruciating petty detail in like roguelike games or NetHack or something like that. And I think about the way that that has coalesced into its own genre, but a shooter game in which you die for smoking a cigarette has not really become a stabilized thing. And it, when you look back at something like The Colony, just thinking, yeah, like if that was the game that had broken through instead of, you know, Wolfenstein or whatever, like how the shooter genre would have changed. Like, could you conceptualize a game like Colony now, and like, how would you package it? Would it be like an adventure roguelike shootervania? Like, would you have to come up with some arbitrary description <laughs> for it versus, you know, however they were trying to package it at the time? Like, I've on the Obscuratory, I have, you know, things are sorted by genre. I have little icons for adventure games and puzzle games. And occasionally I have flitted with removing that, like, as I thought more about it and like, you know, the, the sort of indistinct lines between certain genres. Um, there was a developer in, the, and you know about these folks, a uh, developer in the 90s called Cyberflix, which hmm. was, they made these like interactive movie type games that were like combinations of adventure games and shooter games and had some like role playing, like almost Mass Effect E aspects where like you wandered around a base between missions and like bonded with your crewmates. They're really interesting. And I don't know quite how to package them now. And it, it's like, <laughs> yeah, things just kind of, grow in a sort of arbitrary way over the years and it is neat to go back to some of these older games and wonder about like the different ways the industry or just like the way we critically describe things could have been changed uh, depending on you know what happened to catch on just the right moment and yeah hmm. actually seeing as you, you mentioned cyberflix that reminds me that a lot of the games you write about are in that sort of style, there are these old multimedia games or FMV adventures from the heyday of CD-ROMs. And I was wondering what attracts you to these specifically. Is it just your taste or is there something about the idea? I think... Well, I, I do, you know, have to owe part of it to the, you know, sort of originating from nostalgia for like, oh, CD-ROMs are so cool, and then wanting to do something with that. But like, <laughs> as I've worked with them more, I've, it's what's interesting to me now about them is that they are sort of a transitional fossil when talking about games. Um, there Years ago, there was an exhibit at the Smithsonian about the art of video games. It had some kind of, you know, controversial or odd ways it approached framing things historically, but I love that it framed the 90s as being like a transition period. I think multimedia really embodies that because it was it was this moment where you had suddenly you could do video and audio and you had a large enough CD that you could put an entire encyclopedia on it. 
And it's, it's interesting to see what direction everyone took that in because, you know, it was, you could have kept making the same games. You could have kept making the same sort of like DOS type, you know, action or puzzle games or whatever, but it's neat to see how people started to bring in other elements or say, Hey, we can do this. Let's do this instead. And just went off in this totally different tangent. Like the whole genre of like interactive museum games that existed for a couple of years that only mm-hmm. could have existed because Mist was popular and people realized you could make 3D detailed adventure games and because you could make CD-ROM encyclopedias. And it was just jamming those two ideas together in a way that didn't really have, you know, any kind of long-term future because the internet was coming along, modes of presentation were changing. But it, it's, it's neat to see how people experiment with that to try to imagine what the future of games would look like. I interviewed a couple of years back uh, Bob Stein, who was the f- co-founder of the uh, the Voyager company, which was one of the early companies that did multimedia CD-ROMs. And he mm-hmm. talked about the CD-ROM as being a transitional media. He was thinking, like, what's the book going to look like in 50 years, and what can we do now with the CD-ROM? And it just, it's neat to see how people approached games in the same way, where it was like, we have all these tools, not everything is here yet. How can we enhance what we had or explore some kind of new genre expression by bringing in all these new tools? Some things worked out, some things didn't, but it it is just like people hurling things at a wall for a decade. <laughs> I just think that's so exciting to see like what slid down the wall and did not stick for another... T- that's a really terrible metaphor, but... Um, <laughs> But that's just, it's neat to see how people experimented with concepts and what did and did not work. I think it's fascinating. Mm, yeah. Do, do you have any like favorite examples of, of things that, that you've researched uh, in this area that, that like really grabbed you and you're like, oh, I wish that had uh, gone somewhere or I just love that this is a thing that existed? I think my absolute favorite example for just typifying the multimedia era so perfectly was a game from 1994 called Millennium Auction. Uh, it's a, just a totally bizarre game. It is a like an avant-garde sci-fi art auction simulation game. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's such a weird comedy. You 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 bid on like art and antiques, but then you have to like sort of gamble what's going to happen to them, like how their value is going to go up or down depending on current events and sell them back in different lots at higher prices. But it also has this like really complicated sci-fi story about like a utopian society and the world government. And I was super fascinated by like how this game came into existence because it was this one company made this game, only thing they ever made, self-published, like in a boxed copy. And it turns out it was like, a physicist who got like a $2 million investment from like uh, a guy who owned a construction company in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but it was so clearly a case where it was like some guy decided, you know what, I'm going to make some games. And someone said, oh, you know, games, I'll invest in that. Sure. And gave this guy a $2 million <laughs> check. And the whole production process was chaos. Like it was, uh, you know, the the head of the studio got ousted at one point. Like it was just this absolute mess. But it was like this bizarre game that probably someone should have said we shouldn't do this like a couple times during the process that existed because of like someone going off on a a, just on a a prayer and giving this company money assuming this was going to be the future of entertainment it it just speaks so perfectly to like the excesses and eccentricity of the era so i wouldn't Mm -hmm. say it's necessarily like a great idea that should be continued i think there's some room there for kind of exploring randomness and chance in games of the auction elements but just in terms of what it represents for that era of games, just fascinating stuff. 
Yeah, that's that's really cool. And, and there are a lot of stories around, actually, come to think of it, of uh, things that got funded in the 90s that you, you just wonder how did they get money for that. That that was an <laughs> off-the-wall concept. And these guys don't really know what they're doing, but somehow someone thought it'd be a good idea to give them some money. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's I, I don't want to be like... I don't want to put on rose-colored glasses and say like it was a different time, it was special or anything, but like there really is an element where it was... You know, I think it's it's safe to say in like the late 70s, 80s, you know, there were folks who had said like, you know, this isn't really an industry yet. We don't really know what we're doing. If you go back to like early Sierra games, it's clearly just like a couple people messing around and just throwing something together. I think the, the 90s and like the multimedia era specifically had this weird element where it's like, yeah, it's like it's clearly becoming a business that people are investing in, but also no one's totally 100% sure what's going on right now. And it's still flying by the seat of its pants just enough that it's it's this weird cocktail of like large amounts of money and big ideas and inexperience which i think is super interesting there there was an amazing anecdote um the adventure game the labyrinth of time that was published by electronic arts uh the uh, developer bradley w shank had this amazing story where he said they had finished the game they brought it to electronic arts saying like would you publish this and they wanted a like proposal document or something like even though the game was already done so they wrote this big giant document Headed it to Electronic Arts, and the guy was like, you know, this, I don't think it's not substantive enough. <laughs> so they reprinted <laughs> the same design document on cardstock with like big spaces in the margins or whatever, and they approved it. He was like, it wasn't dishonest. It was like it was more physically substantive for this document. But <laughs> I think it was like you know, two people making a weird game and like sort of lying to a giant corporation about it, and the corporation just throwing money at them and not really caring. Like it's that's just. I think super funny. And it, it, again, typifies this sort of this era where there were these big swings being taken. And uh, yeah, things go into projects that it's not clear in any other era if they would have been approved or if anyone would have said, this is not a good idea. We probably shouldn't spend money on this. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so I, I guess that's a a good point at which to ask how how do you actually find games that you might like to cover on the site? Like, where, where do you go? How do you find out about them? So the, the big secret of the Obscuratory is that when I decided to start doing this in 2008, I started an Excel spreadsheet. And anytime I saw some kind of interesting, weird game, I would add it to the sheet. And I think it's now at about 1,600 games, which I will <laughs> never, ever write about all those. But it's just honestly a matter of, like, patience and searching through stuff. A lot of the times I just go to databases, like I go to Moby Games or even just like the Internet Archive's open dump of software and mm. just scroll through for a title or just something that seems interesting. Uh, a lot of the time it's also when I'm researching something else, I often go back to like old press reports or, you know, things like that. And there will occasionally be like an offhand mention of some company and that leads me to some other mention. And it's the... Um, what's it called in librarianship, like the pearl growing idea where you take like one small kernel and then just kind of expand out from there and keep expanding the scope of it until you start ending up with these bizarre, interesting things. Uh, it's kind of the same way I've stumbled into like the, uh, a lot of my, you know, research has been on the company Maxis and some of the weird uh, misadventures they had over the years they were bought by electronic arts. And a lot of that was just, you know, starting with an interest in, you know, like Sim Farm and Sim Ant or whatever, and then just starting to stumble across all these other strange bits as I started studying deeper and deeper in that. There's not really a unified strategy to a lot of this. Uh, a lot of it is just, um, again, 
trawling through stuff patiently, looking for interesting things, keeping copious notes about what seems neat. Uh, I'm grateful for people's recommendations. A lot of that, sometimes people point out saying, this seems like something you'd like, uh, like Knights of the Crystallion, that bizarre like uh, civilization simulation game for the Amiga. A friend said, this seems up your alley. It was, it was amazing. But like, it's really just amalgamating a bunch of different random sources for where I've seen things over the years. And then just, I think in the spreadsheet, I have a, a column where it's like, is this actually interesting to you? And like low, medium, high. <laughs> and that's kind of been a, uh, it's like when something is clearly like catnip, like, all right, this is an adventure game that is also a, you know, trade simulator. It's like, yes, we I have to look at that thing. <laughs> so keeping track of that, just, just keep really keeping this list for a long time has been helpful and just slowly accumulating names over time. Okay. And, and so then how do you go about choosing from that list which game to play like i remember back when i was at archive.vg and i had this uh from the archive feature i'd play a random game i would literally because of the way our database worked i'd use a random number generator and pick a a game from our database using that but so you've got this spreadsheet how do you decide from that 1600 games which one's next a big part of it honestly is wanting to keep variety and I realized this, uh, occasionally I'll write about some, you know, weird multimedia CD-ROM and I love it. And I'll think like, I, I should just keep writing about these things. But I think what keeps me motivated and exciting is purposely going for stuff I don't usually write about or hopping around to something different. Um, some of the most challenging articles for me, like I, I am happy to sit down and write about, you know, weird experimental games. But some of the stuff that's been challenging for me is going to like, you know, a strategy game, which is not usually my wheelhouse and just kind of exploring from there and spending a lot of time in that. And I think that's helped me grow in terms of how I look at games, how I write about games is purposely hopping around a little bit. Um, I try to rarely do the same genre more than like one or two times in the span of a month or two, um, mm. just to keep sampling things. I, I think it's it's something where I, I, there was someone who said they appreciated the blog because it has the same sort of tone as like a shareware CD, where it's just a bunch of stuff jammed <laughs> together, which I love being able to do that. But I think it, it does help me grow too. It helps me approach things more holistically. Like I, I appreciate when you know people specialize in stuff. Like I love um, the CRPG book project is amazing. And that's someone mm. who's gone through and played like hundreds of computer role-playing games. And just as a, you know, a blurb about each of them dives into them a little bit. And that's incredible. I think for the way I do things, I like having the variety and being pushed outside my comfort zone a little bit on stuff all the time and just trying to constantly hop around to something slightly different. So I haven't, you know, of the spreadsheet, I have another priority list, like things I do want to write about. Um, and then from there, it's kind of looking at it and thinking like, what is something I have not done recently that'll push me in a little bit of a different direction? And it sounds silly to like, to talk about like game criticism stuff from like, how is it going to push me? But it's like, if I have totally open direction on this stuff that I can just, you know, set my own standards for it. It's like, I want, I want to challenge myself. I want mm. to go for, want to go for odd stuff. I want to push myself into corners. I don't think I would write about. That totally makes sense to me as a, a fellow historian and critic. How has your approach to the blog changed over this 11 and a bit years? Oh yeah. It's been, God, it's been 11 years. Oh my God. That's, that's true. It's been a while. And I think it's it's fair to say that when I started out, I didn't really have any experience with this stuff. I had, you know, always wanted to write a game blog, and I would write posts that were a little uh, brusque. I think it's fair to say some of my early writing, I'm not super happy about, and I've gone back and revised it a little bit. I think kind of two big things that have 
changed over the years. One is uh, looking more at the context of things. I think it's worth evaluating a lot of games outside their original context in terms of, again, like what we talked about earlier from like, you know, do these mechanics, are these, you know, the way they make the game mechanics or whatever, is this interesting in its own terms? I think it's worthwhile, but I think it's, as I've gotten more into the history side, like that was not something I really considered early on. I think that really adds a lot, being able to approach something from both a historical and critical standpoint, looking at, you know, what environment the game came out in and looking at what the developers were working with and how they were positioning their game. I think that adds a lot of context. I think they reinforce each other. I think having historical context can make criticism stronger. I think being able to critically evaluate the game changes how you look at the way it was developed. I think they they work well for each other like that. But I think mm-hmm. one of the biggest things that, and this is not, not a super fun one, but it's really critical, is like kindness and empathy in writing about these things. Uh, there's an article that I, I have since pulled from the website uh, that it was an old, it was like this really not super great um, like Donkey Kong uh, clone. Um, I won't even mention it. We'll just talk about the game in general, but um, it was not great. I wrote kind of a nasty article about it, you know, as people, you know, as you know, gamer bros did in like the late 2000s, just like, you know, <laughs> shitting on a game for no particular reason. And later I got an email from the guy who made it and was like, that was really mean. Like, I'm very proud of this game. I worked on this with my dad. Like, why are you being so cruel about it? I don't know, that, that really hit home. I, th- I think it's, you know, especially as the, the open cruelty of the internet has become more amplified, I, th- I think it's worth mm-hmm. being kind and empathetic about these things. You know, people don't sit out to make terrible games. People don't sit out to be bad or cruel. I think, you know, occasionally there will be something that is kind of terrible. It's worth talking about that. But, like, I think it's worth, you know, people, like we said, these things matter to people. And I, I think it's worth approaching them honestly and sincerely. And I think that's something I've really learned over the year, but a combination of, of, you know, experience like that combination of going through therapy, you know, it's, <laughs> it's just important to be kind about things. Kindness, you know, opens doors and makes things possible that you don't get through apathy and cynicism and sarcasm. And I think that's been one of the things, again, not saying like, you know, the obscurator used to be all about cynicism. Like that's not, that was never like the approach, but like that's something that I think has changed about me that has changed the way I write about games. I think. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's great that you came to that realization because uh, yeah, again, uh, games are made by people. People uh, have dreams, ambitions, feelings. They, they they put their heart and soul into what they make, even if what they make is terrible. And <laughs> and I've always tried to keep that in mind. To I, I I like to approach games with an earnestness. I guess you might say that's a good word. Uh, yeah. And and yeah, and even if the game doesn't seem interesting, if I'm going to talk about it, I'm going to look for what what's the nugget in here that is interesting. What what's what's the cool idea that they had. Uh, that that could have been explored more somewhere or what's the what's the nice story behind the game because there's often a beautiful story behind a bad game yeah i i think this may have been a conversation someone was having on twitter but there was a good point made that mystery science theater has had kind of a weird effect on how we discuss these kind of things because you know mystery science theater was always making fun of this stuff but it was always in a way that was approaching it from like this is sort of a, a, like a, a shared perspective, like Mystery Science Theater was also this weird low-budget thing, and it was kind of this shared, like, wow, this movie was made really crappily. Isn't this great? And the way that over the years, that's kind of, you know, 
metastatizing people into being like, look at this thing that's bad. Isn't it bad? And just having a different approach to it and thinking like, you know, maybe some things are weird and idiosyncratic and not super well executed. And maybe there's something great about that as opposed to, you know, just writing things off. I think that we, we can really expand what kind, not just what, what kind of games we talk about and look at, but like, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it, it's really, it really helps just ex- expand our perspective to care about things like that. Um, and that's, I think something curiosity has become really important to me over the years doing the obscuratory. I think I started the blog as like, I think I've seen someone say like, it was like a, a, Hey, smell this approach to uh, talking about games. Just like, look at this. Isn't this weird? Oh yeah. But I think over time, you know, curiosity and wanting to see what's up with some of these things, you know, that if something is strange or perhaps not great, you know, poking at it a little bit and seeing what's behind it. I think that that is something I've come to value uh, mm. through doing the obscuratory that I hope people can take away. Yeah. And and you were talking earlier about uh, Maxis being a, a big research interest and uh, oh, yeah. Sim, Sim Health is one that you really poked a long way into. Oh, man. <laughs> The, uh, the story of Sim Health and the Maxis Business Simulations Division is fascinating. Uh, I, I'm hoping, hopefully this year, I can finally write the story about that. Uh, it is a story that, um, it's just such a weird corner. It was just like this, for those who don't know, so Maxis Business Simulations, it was a division that Maxis had. They purchased a company that did uh, like simulation modeling and had them do uh, like serious games for Maxis, essentially. And they didn't really get a whole lot done at Maxis. They made... Uh, Sim Health and uh, Sim Refinery, which is a game I, I think about a lot, um, mm-hmm. but they, you know, they, they didn't do a whole lot at Maxis. They spun off into their own company, but it was this like weird chapter where it was like these eight people who had this like, you know, very, I don't know, interesting couple of years in their lives developing these games and going on these little adventures and like making a game that ended up in the White House. And it's it's such an odd like branch. Like the story of Sim Health gets reduced to like. Hey, look at this cup. Like Maxis made a game about healthcare. Isn't that weird? But you keep going down layers and layers, and it's like these sub companies and all like, you know, the people who put their hopes and dreams into it and the way that interacted with like international, well, I guess national policy. And it's, there are so many, if you drill down to something, there's so many unusual stories like that. I think everyone has fascinating stories like Millennium Auction. Like I didn't expect that to be such a bizarre melodrama, but like I think everything has an interesting story that matters to someone like that. It's, it's worth drilling down into that for sure. Was it Sim Refinery that is the lost Nexus <laughs> game? Yeah. So uh, Sim Refinery, I think I can say pretty definitively, there's no surviving copies. Um, I've been speaking with a lot of folks who are involved in Maxis business simulations. It was, uh, it was designed for the Chevron corporation. And uh, from what I've heard, like they don't really have any copies retained, at least in any way that's accessible because it was, you know, it was like a, a training program that was made to like show the HR people how, uh, you know, a refinery worked and they piloted it and maybe used it a little bit later, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the kind of thing people thought were valuable. And I guess I can actually segue this into a, a mini rant about this, but like, I think going through the obscuratory has more and more made me think about the extent to which things get written out of history because people don't think they're interesting. I think one of the measures of this is just looking at what games have been pirated. So like, 
you know, when I started the Obscuratory, you know, it was things like the Internet Archive software collection were not nearly as robust. So a lot of the times you had to go to like kind of, you know, sketchy websites and find things. And the things that people were putting up on sketchy websites all tended to be like action games, strategy games, etc. cetera. Uh, educational software is still a very, there's very spotty coverage in terms of documentation of games because I have to assume when people were doing all this work, like, you know, ripping things and putting them online in like 2004, you didn't want to like, you know, go back to the game you played in grade school and like put that on. Like, that's not cool. So I, th- I think that was a huge element in a lot of things that like something like Sim Refinery was considered not necessarily interesting and worth saving in the same way that, you know, Sim City was. And like, maybe there's a kernel of truth to that. Like Sim Refinery is such a weird niche thing, but like more broadly speaking, like we the things that we're interested in, the things that we pay attention to, that we document, that we preserve, and I think that really shapes the narrative of history. And I think it's worth going back and looking at the stuff that we've thrown away or said that, you know, maybe this isn't worth investing in. I think there's a lot of fascinating stuff there. Uh, some of it is just weird spiraling dead ends, but you end up with stuff like um, the Mama Mite. It was uh, Kelsey Lewin, the uh, co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, was uh, sharing this. It was a... Uh, a pregnancy tracker for the uh, Wonderswan that didn't sell super well, but it was this, just a weird thing where it was like a healthcare company getting involved in making Wonderswan games, and until she managed to get one, like there was almost no documentation about this thing. And like, I get why that is less well documented than like Super Mario World. Like that makes sense, but it's mm-hmm. frustrating to see like when especially for something like games where like it is still such a a a relatively new and slightly chaotic industry where like if something doesn't get documented now we're not going to know about it in 10 years i think it's worth going to stuff like that and making an effort to to seek it out and trying to do justice by and you know bring it back into the historical conversation because it hasn't been well represented and that goes back especially to what i was saying about like you know games that were played made by folks in marginalized groups it's like stuff that was cut out of the narrative, you know, it's important to say this exists, like just to be able to assert that and say this mattered. Um, yes, mm. that was, that's the end of, end of that sentence, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 you could probably talk for hours about, about different uh, things that have been uh, deemed uh, not of value to the history of games. And, and that, that sucks that, uh, we haven't learned from what happened with film and was it 80, 90% or something, or is it more than that of, of film history is gone because people at the time didn't deem it valuable and they didn't preserve it. Yeah. Yeah. And even beyond like the games themselves, like just the, the context around them. Like, I think there's a lot of games that we are, I mean, it it presents some challenges because, you know, such a large part of like discussing, you know, what games were big in the 80s and 90s, you could do a lot of stuff in Japan and there's, you know, cultural barriers there and there's, there's challenge there. And then also the issue of, you know, American mega corporations not really being forthcoming about stuff. I don't know. It's, it's, there, there is, there are so many holes in what we think is valuable, or at least until up until, you know, more recently, as this has become more active conversation and what we think is valuable with the sim refinery thing. Like, so this is somewhat controversial. I don't, even though Sim Refinery is like a lost game, I don't think we need it. I think it would be cool to be able to play it, but it's not, I don't think especially, you know, necessary because it was like a, I guess, a nonfiction game. It's not really a thing, but it was sort of a nonfiction game. What's more interesting is the context around how it was used and like hearing stories from the folks who made it about like how they work with Chevron to create it. 
or the way it was used at Chevron, they were doing training exercises. Like, I think some of that is more interesting than having the games themselves. I think when I'm glad there's a lot of public energy around game preservation, game history, and all that, but I think a lot of it sometimes comes down to kind of a hoarder perspective where it's like, all right, we have, you know, an ISO file of this game. I'm going to save it on my hard drive. The game's saved. There we go. Boom, next game. <laughs> but it's like, what are we going to do with that? If we're saving things because they're historically interesting, because we want to be able to access them, we also need to be able to save the context or we got to be able to talk about these things. Like we have to be able to get the game out and play it and see who it mattered to and how it was made. Like that stuff matters a lot too. I don't think it's enough to just have a file somewhere. And I think that's kind of what the Obscuratory has been about too, is like going to the stuff where it's like, yeah, we have a copy of like, you know, the experimental CD-ROM that Laurie Anderson made. It's like, great, here it is on the shelf. It's like, when's the last time someone has taken a critical approach to that game? Um, and folks, I don't want to single that game out because folks have gone back to that one and like, you know, reevaluated it. But I think it's worth bringing some of these things back, re-looking at the context. And uh, I don't even remember what the original thing you said was, but um, <laughs> but no, I, I think it, it's it's valuable Oftentimes, the context can be more valuable than the game. I think, mm. um, and, and flowing on from that, uh, I'm I'm curious uh, how much of a challenge you find it uh, to uh, get that context. I've, I found when I was doing my Mac gaming book and uh, some of my research nowadays too, um, I run into dead ends all the time. Like I, I start researching something and then bam, I can't go any further unless I can somehow track down this person who I may not even have their real name <laughs> and I'm trying to, to find out some history about the game because there's, there's no surviving uh, magazine articles about it or it wasn't even covered in a magazine and maybe there's one tiny mention on Usenet somewhere but basically there's no context for how this thing was made, who played it, why it oh, yeah. was interesting. So I think that's... That's definitely true. I think I, I run into a combination of two things. One of them is just people's willingness to work at this sort of thing. You know, occasionally there'll be someone who's super enthusiastic and cooperative and wants to like send stuff. And that's awesome. I'm so glad people are enthusiastic about it. But occasionally you run into folks who don't want to talk about things. And oftentimes there's good reason. There was a game I was doing research on a while ago that I need to finally write about called uh, Treasure Quest, which was like a it was like a puzzle adventure game where the grand prize was a million dollars and it was broiled in all sorts of controversy. There was a rumor that like one of the designers sued the company and I got in contact with them and they politely declined to talk about it. And it's like, I understand that it's completely fine. Don't want to press you on it. But at the same time, it's just leave this giant gap because the other developer of the game died a few years ago. And it's like, there's just nothing else out there about it. So, and that's understandable. Like you don't want to you know, people are entitled to their privacy. Like, that, absolutely. But I also run into the problem you had, too, where it's like, if you're looking at a smaller game, especially when it's something like a fan game or like a freeware game, a lot of the times people would just put it out under a pseudonym and, you know, who knows how to track them down. And a lot of times, you know, people have left this that life behind. Even like for, you know, if someone made like a Macintosh shareware game and then you know, 30 years later, they are now like a real estate agent or whatever. And someone comes up and says, Hey, can I talk about this old game? And, you know, it's a matter of actually finding them. And then if they want to participate in it or not, but like, yeah, the, the actual tracking people down is tough because again, like sometimes people don't want to be associated with some of this stuff. So like, not to say like, 
you know, all the games people made 30 years ago are, you know, like terribly offensive or anything like that. But, you know, even I, I have a, uh, it's not a dark past. I have a past where I was the administrator of a major Mario fan game website. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this can look me up and find all my weird old forum posts and not super proud of, but like, it's interesting. I'm happy to talk about it with people, but it's also something where like, I do want to create a little bit of distance from it. And that one, I don't have total like name anonymity from, but like for the kind of stuff you research, like weird Mac shareware games, like Hmm. I'm sure for a lot of people, they're like, oh, you know, I don't have to think about that anymore. And then, you know, years later, here comes Richard. And uh, (laughs) yep, yeah. Yeah, there are people who I I contacted and I, I distinctly remember some of them saying, I didn't think anybody knew that knew about that game, or I haven't thought about that in twenty years, or how did you find me? <laughs> that, that's <laughs> that's things. a big one too. Yeah, and you have to explain like, ah, oh, look at some like weird sketchy website, or you know, getting into that kind of uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and that's just the people that I'm able to track down. There are other people who it's like I've got maybe their name and where they lived in the mid 1980s <laughs> <laughs> you still can't, uh, <laughs> can't send a check to them anymore based on they're like you know send a, like a beer to this address and i'll get back to you in 10 years like can't do that anymore uh, that, that that reminds me of the continuum story you you've you know that one, right? You read my book, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Continuum. So for anyone listening, that's a, a shareware game that was sold as beerware, where they said, if you like the game, send us alcohol. And they got <laughs> thousands of dollars worth of alcohol over the next couple of years. <laughs> it was hilarious talking to those two guys, the, the brothers about it. And they're still just amazed that people actually sent them alcohol because they thought it was a joke. <laughs> and so to, to talk about like something super recent so there is uh there's a, a game critic writer person uh, emily reed who right now is running uh, an event called the speculation jam where she is getting people to uh, write about what they think the future of video games is and just like speculating about different modes of things and one of the things she was asking about was like different modes of distribution because especially in indie communities you know there's a lot of tension about you know steam versus the merits of doing something on like you know uh, itch.io or whatnot and something like like beerware, like that's kind of silly. But the more I think about it, it's like that's a concept that's not necessarily just beerware, but like that kind of thing. Like that's kind of fallen by the wayside. But it's like it's a little less convenient. But why can't someone explore that now? And it's worth revisiting some of the stuff and saying, like, you know what? Maybe that's not the worst idea. Maybe uh, put it in a situation where you're not consuming thousands of dollars of alcohol. But you know, maybe this, maybe there's a kernel of truth to it. Maybe there's like we can revisit some of these earlier things and explore alternate modes of distribution uh, just based on, you know, growing off of an idea that someone did that, you know, maybe didn't catch on, but has some unique qualities to it. Mm. It'd be really cool if someone released a a game as like a, I don't know what you'd call it, but send me a letter, like send me an actual physical snail mail letter. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll give you access to some extra parts of the game. <laughs> and I, I get, I get why that's not possible. If you're like launching on Steam and you have a social media blitz and whatever, like I get why, like you know, like Red Dead Redemption Two is never going to be released as beerware. 
Like that's understandable. And then for smaller developers, you know, maybe it's, you know, financially imposing. Like if they want, if they're, you know, really depending on getting money off a project, it's tough to like take a gamble and something like that. But it would be fun to explore that to just, again, the merits of going back and just revisiting some of these ideas and saying, you know what, what if we do that again? What if we give it a shot? You know, the shareway model that, that probably would work today uh, for for a lot of games would be the um, you you pay me money uh, of a certain amount and I'll give you my source code and it'll be annotated oh. and you'll be able to help learn how to make games yourself from it. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's interesting too. Huh. <laughs> And that that's almost completely vanished now. But there there was a period there in the in the late eighties and the early nineties where that was the dominant way of distributing independent software. You'd, you'd ask people if you like it, send me I don't know five dollars. If you really like it, send me ten dollars, and I'll give you and I'll send back a disc that has the source code on it. Fascinating, huh? You know, to an extent, like the as the game industry has sort of prized its secrecy, uh, even hearing interviews with like narrative designers who like can't talk about the top secret narrative design software they use on games, like you know that there are some obstacles to it. But I think to the extent that like you know indie communities especially value that kind of openness, like that's interesting. That is really interesting. I think especially since it's uh, there's not a lot of source materials for a lot of games out there. I think that's becoming scarcer to be able to come by. I think that that's a really neat way of not just exploring distribution and exploring like alternative ways to use a dirty word to monetize games, but just also in terms of, yeah, being able to, uh, build on them and yeah, build off history and even just like make sure that is out there. that Someone has the source code to it instead of just letting it die in a hard drive on like an old windows XP computer. Mm. Yeah. So everyone listening, uh, go make stuff that has weird business models, try stuff out. <laughs> Bring shareware back. That'd be great. Like proper, the proper shareware model of you like my stuff, send me money. Well, maybe I'll know, give you something extra. It is kind of funny. I was thinking about other modes and like there is charity wear was one of the ones that was big. And I think about, because that was also like, you know, show me that you donated a charity and I'll give you the game. Mm. And I think about the extent to which that has been sort of transported into something like the Humble Bundle model. And I wonder if there's not other ways that it's possible to... I don't want to say co-op, but to sort of recycle some of those ideas for alternative ways to distribute games and conditions like shareware and turning that into a business model. Like in that, you know, there's more work involved in like building infrastructure for a platform uh, to handle, like, you know, you'd have to build a whole website to handle your beerware, uh, which would be difficult, but something like that. It's, it's, I, I, I had not thought about the parallel between charityware and the extent to which there's like charity bundles for games now. And mm. I think there's something there. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's really interesting the way shareware has uh, turned into a lot of the current business models that we have in games. It, it evolved into them. Like that's, that's a good one that you mentioned there. Then also like microtransactions and things, they are effectively coming out of, the way shareware used to work and uh, there was this period on the the app store where everyone was releasing a light version of their game and then you you go and you you buy the the paid version that had extra levels 
and then Apple allowed in-app purchases. So then people just started making the light version the game, and then you pay a couple of bucks and you unlock the full game, which is almost exactly the Apogee model of shareware. Come to think of it, isn't that also how like the Xbox Arcade for 360 worked? Was that not technically like some form of shareware? Huh. I guess so. That's funny. It's like, you know, shareware seems like such an ancient concept, but like there's ways to reuse it in different modes of distribution. So yeah, worth revisiting. Hmm. And on, on the subject of, of monetization, actually, one thing that I believe has been constant with your site is you've never asked for donations or run ads or done any kind of monetization stuff. It's true. And I was wondering uh, like, why it is that it's important to you that the obscuratory remains a hobby. So I guess it's something I thought a lot about in terms of the division between, you know, something I'm doing for fun and something that's like a hustle. You know, I thought about doing something like Patreon before, but I, I've been thinking a lot recently um, about just, you know, the extent to which that having money involved and making it into more of a professional thing. Like I, I've, I'm very fortunate to have had a lot of opportunities through the Obscuratory to talk at things or to get involved with game preservation. But at the same time, I also realized, like I, I've, like I mentioned, I, I kind of value the freedom of direction I have the Obscuratory. And I realized that, you know, as beneficial as it might be, you know, to be able to, you know, have a Patreon or something like it also, I think it would, it would make me feel constrained to, you know, external expectations about what it is. I do realize saying this, that this is coming from a position of privilege, uh, that I'm in a place where I have a well-paying job. I'm not having to like do freelance work necessarily. You know, I'm not an art. Like I have friends who are artists who really depend on what they make through Patreon or through donations. And like, I realize I'm in a place where I'm able to do this for free and not everyone can. And I'm, I'm, I try to be mindful of that. But I also think about the extent to which, you know, that I think it's, it's important to still be able to do things for fun. Uh, that this is something that like that I really value being able to do and being able to follow my own direction on it. And you know, I, I think it's worth doing if it's possible. I realize it's not an option for everybody, but that it's. Um, I think it's worthwhile to have that division as we get into the you know uh, gig economy hell economy that we live in now, where uh, you know we have to uh, monetize everything we do in order to get healthcare or everything like that. Uh, because being alive is so expensive. I get that it's not an option, but I also think if it's possible, it's it's worth being able to keep that demarcation, being able to say, this is something I'm doing for fun, I'm doing it for myself, and being able to follow it because I think it's an exciting, fun thing to do. That That's a distinction that I think has really helped me with the Obscuratory in terms of just being able to keep sort of my, you know, having an independent direction to it and uh, being able to make it what I want and shaping it is something I'm, I'm proud of. Um, there is a, there's a great quote from, I think it was the Coen brothers won one of their Oscars for, uh, no country for old men. When they went up there for their speech, they said something to the effect of like, uh, you know, thanks for letting us play in our corner of the sandbox. And I like that. I, I like the idea of being able to cultivate a space for yourself. I like the idea of not you know, of when it's possible of being able to make a thing for yourself in your own space. I, you know, I'm very grateful to have a friend who, you know, acts as my web host. Um, but, you know, being able to find a space to do something for yourself, I think that's that's something I always loved about 
the early internet that I realized is getting harder and harder to do for many reasons. And maybe it's the external finances. Maybe it's just the the fact that, you know, it's harder to drive traffic to a personal website or a blog now versus social media or like YouTube. But I think it's worth being able to cultivate our own thing in our own space. I think that's something that's worth not losing sight of. Yeah. And if, if I were in the position to, to do this podcast purely for fun, I probably would because I enjoy it just so much. But because it takes up time that I, it, it, I'm actually competing with myself. I, I take away some of my own income in order to make this show because a lot of the stories that I, that I tell are things that I could have gotten a few hundred dollars or even a couple of thousand dollars uh, doing as a freelance piece. And instead I'm earning like a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. I, I, it's, I get that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a tough choice to make. Like, and I, mm. I think about, yeah, other freelance journalists I know who are, you know, constantly having to worry about how much they're getting paid per piece. And that's tough. But I also think about, I don't want, I don't want to rag on streamers as a group. There's a lot of cool game streamers out there. But I think about a lot of the time, the extent to which people, I don't know, funnel a lot of resources in this kind of thing, and then it just sort of become beholden to it. Again, I, I'm really struggling to talk about this because I, I don't want to just sound like a big privileged jerk, which maybe I am right now, just being like, I just do it for fun. <laughs> don't worry about money, whatever. But I, I think a lot of these things, when it's not a matter of like your career, when we're just doing these things because games are fun and we like to do you know, streaming around. Like, in those kind of cases, I know it, it, it's kind of frustrating the extent to which, you know, once you have an audience that's coming back regularly, once you have money coming in, that it kind of changes the way you think about something. And if it can work for you, it can work for you. I think that's, I think that's super exciting if you can, you know, be able to do that. But, you know, if, if you can, it doesn't have to be that way, I guess is what I'm saying. And, uh, this is a weird tangent. I, I know I, it's something I feel strongly about, but it's also something that I realize is not an option for a lot of people. Um, but at least for me, it's like, if I can do this without turning it into like a business where I feel obligated to do it, I, th- I think I would begin to feel restless doing it in a way that I don't right now having relative freedom with it. Mm. Yeah. Where you get to just follow your own whims. Yeah. Which, which again, I realize is, uh, you know, privileged town USA right now. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, segueing on from, uh, this, uh, talk of, of hobbies versus side hustles, um, your, your day job, you, you're a librarian, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, so I'm a librarian. I, uh, am my official title is I am the visual media collection coordinator at my li- collections, plural, I guess, collections coordinator at my library. Uh, I won't mention the name just because I'm not representing them in an official capacity. So I don't want to mm. like, you know, sound like I'm speaking for them, but uh, I work with our visual media collection. I do collection development there, uh, you know, sort of ingesting things as we receive them. But a big part of my work there is uh, working with our VHS collection, which we are on an ongoing project to try to preserve because, you know, VHS is now an obsolete format. These things aren't getting mm. accessed. So we are using, you know, the privileges we have in copyright law to digitize the films, make them available, uh, and just kind of exploring what options we have for doing that. So it's a combination of uh, digitization work, but also just, uh, you know, working with concepts like copyright law and fair use to try to explore uh, ways we can make things accessible to the uh, university community. So what are the parallels you found in the doing that 
and uh, doing and, and like trying to preserve old and obscure games. That's interesting. I think one of the parallels is the extent to which, and this isn't the actual definition of the phrase "orphan works." Uh, that usually refers to like you know cases where I like, can't get in contact with folks, but like for cases like for a lot of these things, for a lot of old games, for a lot of these you know VHS educational films we have. It's cases where there is no visible distributor around anymore. There's no one who seems to be actively caring for it. Like it's, it's sort of parallels to like abandoned wear in terms of a lot of our collection, and the extent to which, you know, at, at the library we operate under pretty strict terms for what we can do. Uh, we're following a part of U.S. copyright law that allows us to make duplicates if we can like determine all these exact specifics. We can't release things outside the premises. We can only make a limited number of copies. But just conceptually, like the extent to which in a lot of cases, there's really no one to care if a lot of this stuff is, you know, released elsewhere. Um, I think one of the parallels with games is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of them with Abandonware, but like for one that you have worked with, like something like Ambrosia Software, mm. uh, they're a company that has been kind of coming and going over the years that seems to be in a, uh, a going phase right now uh, in terms of there being no website, no real way to get in contact with folks who are available, who, you know, work there. And I, I think about that in parallel with like the VHSs, where it's like we are under strict terms that we can't reproduce some of these videos, but it's also a case where, speaking outside my professional capacity, if we did just like put them up in the internet archive, there wouldn't really be a lot of folks who would care. And it's interesting to think about preservation in those terms. Um, you know, obviously it's very different if it's like you know, an out of print. Like we'll occasionally come across like an HBO film that has not been published on DVD, and there's not you know that kind of binds us a lot more because there is, you know, uh, Time Warner, or I guess they're Warner Media now. I forget what their giant uh, evil corporation name is now. But, like, obviously, <laughs> that's that's a very different deal. It's the same deal as, like, working with, you know, uh, something by Blizzard or something like that. But I think it's interesting. Like, when we're having to calculate the risk of a lot of these things, like, is there anyone who's going to actively care about this? I think is something that's, you know, it's a, a valid concern. It's not something we are formally considering uh, in my position, just because, again, we're working on pretty strict terms, but, like, it's kind of a similar thing. For a long time, for uh, for games, I was always like, ah, oh, you know, piracy, I'm very mixed on it, I don't know, like, technically, this is a copyrighted game. But over the years, it's just been like, you know what, N no one really cares about this. Like, this is a game that there don't seem to be any stakeholders in anymore. This is a strange shareware thing that the, even getting in touch with the developer on their website, they don't respond. It's like, you know, in these cases, it's like, it's kind of okay. Uh, that's a very, very <laughs> glossing over version of like fair use and whatever. But like, I don't know. It's, it's, I think that's something that really applies to a lot of media. Um, I think it's, it's tough in a lot of formats because, you know, things get bought up by different companies and the rights end up in some giant clearinghouse somewhere. So someone still does care about it. But I don't know. It's, it's interesting the extent to which there is stuff that is not cared for anymore. I think is one of the interesting parallels and just what we can do about that in, you know, the capacity of being an institution, which is not really a lot because we're being very conservative about it versus, um, you know, what people can do as individuals, which for me is like releasing the, you know, disc image for secret writer society on the internet archive and just assuming it's going to be okay because no one particularly cares about this game anymore. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's something I hadn't really thought about much, but uh, I'm sure uh, with TV you'd have a lot of the same problems with that you have with games, where uh, there's 
old there's old stuff that nobody even remembers anymore but it's probably worth saving it for for anyone who's a scholar of 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 tv drama and things oh yeah absolutely there's a ton of stuff so our collection is primarily uh not primarily but there's a heavy focus on educational films instructional films uh documentaries things like that because we were at university so we were trying to collect material for you know other departments to use and i think it's interesting how much of that stuff is interesting from a historical standpoint and just for research purposes, there is a tape. It is one of my favorite tapes in the world. It is called This is Internet. It was <laughs> produced by the American Library Association. It is a primer for people in like, you know, 1994 or whatever on what the internet is. And it is, it is beautiful and spectacular and it's so dated. But it's from a historical standpoint, it's like this is actually pretty interesting. You're thinking about how one of the largest, you know, organizations of you know information professionals like this is how their official material was made to say like this is how you should think about this new information network that is now so prevalent everywhere that's pretty interesting i think it definitely a lot of these things there have been cases where i thought about like you know should we digitize this and i've gotten you know my supervisor said like don't bother nobody cares about that (laughs) and just digitizing it and watching it it's like there is a kernel of something interesting here that's worth you know saving I think it's fair to say that, you know, we do have, we don't particularly because we just have very limited scope, but I think, you know, you, we can't save everything that's totally unrealistic. And I think it's worth scoping things in and saying, we're not going to save X, Y, Z in some cases. But I think especially with a lot of these like copyrighted historical works on video, like it's, I don't know, there's enough there that if we can, we should while we still can. Uh, but it's also like I realize the the arc of history is not going to change too much if we lose this as internet. But it is also, um, yeah, it's it's worth saving if we can in these cases. Uh, in other cases, we have a, a VHS tape that has it's a wonderful name. It's called Crimes of Violence, uh, and it is I put it into our VHS player and it almost destroyed the VHS player. So I got a second copy. And that also almost destroyed the VHS player. At that point, I said, you know what? Crimes of violence is lost. Good luck. And just kind of moved on to the next thing. And like, you have to, you know, when you're doing something at such a large pace, you have to make those choices sometimes, which is kind of frustrating. But it is worth saving the small stuff, whether it's, you know, weird shareware games, whether it's tapes like this. Like, it definitely opens your eyes to, like, a lot of this stuff, it was produced by people who cared about it. There's still something interesting, even just in a retrospective sense, looking at it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think there's parallels there in terms of thinking about, you know, what gets saved and what's useful. Is there anything that you think um, those of us who do games history and preservation in its many different forms could learn from the way libraries work? So I think one of the interesting ways to approach it is that when libraries do this kind of thing, they're not just doing it for fun. Uh, they're not just doing it because it's their hobby or something like that. Uh, they, they always have a specific focused purpose. And for us, that's always been making materials accessible to the broader university community against researchers. And I think when we do game preservation, I think there is often, well, game preservation or collecting or anything like that, there's often a bit of a compulsive element to it or like a data hoarder element to it to an extent. Like even something like Sim Refinery, I was uh, perhaps a little over-motivated looking for that years ago because it was like, oh, this is this lost thing. We got to save it and not necessarily thinking about, you know, why that would be valuable. And, you know, I think there is inherent worth in saving things and preserving, digitizing things. But 
I think it's worth thinking about the end purpose too. Like when we're trying to preserve a game, like I recently just ordered some uh, weird old games on eBay because I want to make sure I had the box to eventually, you know, donate to the museum of play or something. And it's a question where it's like, well, why does this matter? Why are we doing it? What's the end goal here? I think that's worth thinking about. I think Mm. for games, especially, I think we get so wrapped up in sort of the, uh, the awe of the medium of just insisting that, you know, there's something inherently special about games or that, you know, it's because, oh, I grew up playing games and now I want to save them all or uh, something like that. I think it's, um, it's, it's worth thinking about who the audience is, what the purpose is. Uh, again, saving things historically, I think still has merit, but just thinking about who's going to use it, who the intended audience is. Um, there's a great, there's the, uh, a thing that gets used in library science a lot. It's the like the laws of library science or something like that. And two of them are it's uh, every book, its user and every user, their book where it's saying that we have to have material for everyone who needs it, but also everything that we have has to have a potential use or user. I think it's neat to think about it in those terms too. Hmm. Um, again, for something like, you know, every super Nintendo game, like that's kind of uh, a problem that's um, been kind of solved by piracy to an extent and that you can just download the good set of ROMs and there's all those. Um, but when we get into broader things about like why we're chasing down historical material or prototypes, I think it's worth keeping that kind of mission in mind that we're not just trying to accumulate material in a giant pile that will outlive us so we can live forever or something like that. I think it's worth thinking about we're getting these things because we want to research these games because they're historically interesting because there's you know merit in going back and exploring concepts like different distribution modes or how people design games with limited technology or how things might have gone in different directions. I think it's worth keeping those end goals in mind when we do this stuff, because otherwise we're just making a mountain of things. And I think not only is that a, a kind of empty, I think that can also veer off in some bad directions. I think that can end up with people being uh, someone who has gone down this road, uh, kind of overzealous in some directions or, you know, just kind of moving compulsively without having, you know, without thinking about the, the benefit of what they're doing. I think mm. that's, uh, and again, not to say that like people who are preserving video games are like, you know, soulless zombies. I do not mean to imply that, but just in terms of like thinking about why we're doing stuff and keeping that in mind and just, you know, mm. how things are going to be used. Yeah. Well, what, what's the value we can derive from this? Yeah. Who's going to use it in 50 years? Who is going to care that I bought a copy of, uh, ultimate ride the uh roller coaster game by disney imagineering who's gonna care <laughs> about that <laughs> so in, in all these years you've been um, you've been working on your blog uh, uh i would imagine you will have learned uh, quite a number of things about about game design about games history obviously game development th- this mm-hmm. sort of stuff is there anything that stands out to you that like insights you've gained through looking closely at obscure old games in terms of like insights into 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 the medium or into the industry i think a big thing and this kind of goes with the approaching things from a perspective of kindness is just the extent to which things are made and played by people i think especially when you are growing up and playing games it's easy to look at it as just these magical things that arrive whether it's you know if you're like my age, if it's on like a disc or whether now it's just like something you download from Steam or someone something someone streams out there. It, it, I think it's, as I look closer at these things, it becomes more and more clear the extent to which these are things made by people. And I know that sounds kind of 
I don't know, silly and even a little redundant, but like that example of like that Donkey Kong clone game, like these, these are not things that just materialize. These are things being constructed by people working in teams. These are pe- what you know people put their lives into. And I think the way that manifests sometimes is fun and exciting. When you look at really idiosyncratic games, games that have like strange uh, mechanics or really bizarre approaches to things, you know, you start to think about it less in terms of you know, that sort of like, oh, why did it doesn't make any sense? Cinema sins, 10 reasons this game doesn't make any sense. And you start thinking about it from like, why did this person do this? What were they trying to approach with this? And occasionally you do come across something, you know, you, you start to be able to distinguish between, I mean, I look at a lot of weird things that, you know, kind of go off in weird directions. You start to notice the difference between a weird thing where it was someone trying something different versus a weird thing that is in fact, totally incoherent. And you start to draw those lines a little bit, or like you start to notice what's, you know, something that was rushed together under constraints versus something where it was somebody pursuing some really weird idea they actually believed in. Um, there was this really odd game. I, I wrote a whole article about this game and deleted it later because, before I published it because I didn't realize what it was, but it was a, it's a game that was it's like an adventure game that takes place in uh los angeles after the la riots and it was called uh, angst a tale in urban survival and uh i thought it was a parody it is not uh it is a very tone-deaf game about uh, approaching this like very sensitive you know situation involving race and approaching it from a perspective of like huh why don't these people have jobs it just it's so tone-deaf but like it was something that was made very intentionally. It was not just someone throwing together a game. It was clearly this small, uh, somewhat anonymous company I can't find out much about that clearly put a lot of thought into how they made this and how certain things were done. And so, you know, you, you start to distinguish between something that is thrown together on huge constraints versus something that is, you know, for that game, I'll use the word premeditated. <laughs> uh, but you, you start to think about that a little bit more. Uh, I think that's been one of the big things I've taken away from it. Mm. And you talked earlier about uh, some of the cool stuff you found in the CD-ROM world, but if you think more broadly, uh, do you have any favorite discoveries uh, from working on the Obscuratory? I, I feel like it's not going to sound like it's a discovery and like planting a flag or like colonializing something. And in this case, I especially don't want to. But I think one of the most important things I've learned about in the last decade is uh, the work of Muriel Tremis, who is a uh, developer who she is uh, from Martinique, and uh, through the 80s and I think into the early 90s, she made games that were uh, heavily about uh, her, you know, sort of her her background and her family's background and heritage on Muriel uh, on uh, Martinique, and I think they are extremely powerful games that still hold up very well. I think it is uh, her one of her big ones was a game called uh, Freedom, Rebels in the Darkness, which is a game about a slave rebellion on Martinique. And it is incendiary and shocking. It is a game where you go through a plantation and you murder people and burn things down. And it's incredible. And it came out in 1988. And it, it matters so much that games like that existed at that time, especially. And that's one I, I'm so glad that more people are talking about Muriel Tremis' work now. Uh, there was a wonderful article by uh, Amanda Chang that just came out recently in uh, Feminist Media Histories uh, Journal. That's a, uh, It was an extended interview with her, but also just kind of reflecting on her work and the extent to which her uh, body of work reflects just like a meditation on the legacy of colonialism. And 
I think that's incredible. And mm-hmm. I, I just think, I just, I, I, in her case, is pretty incredible, but I, I think about, you know, the extent to which there have been those kinds of smaller games over time. I think recently you see a lot more of that as people, you know, as that becomes a, it becomes easier to distribute games that speak to that kind of very personal perspective. But, you know, I just know there's other folks out there, you know, as from the 80s and 90s who made games like that, who, you know, aren't well known. I, it's, I think her work is especially exciting, um, but I do also, it makes me think about like what, else there may be out there. And I think it is important to, you know, there's a couple of weird things where I'm happy to be like, oh yeah, I discovered this weird thing. Isn't this wild? But like, I think it's important to move away from that framing sometimes and to think about things more mm. in terms of just like learning and sharing. Again, just because I think there's a a tendency, especially in like the, you know, the content creator world and such of, you know, just sort of like planting a flag and stuff and sort of <laughs> appropriating it into, you know, whatever narrative you have. I think it's important to look at things in terms of like being able to share them with people and being able to like, you know, teach these things and, you know, more people learning about them. I think it's, it's exciting to think about them in terms of that sort of communal knowledge. Um, and I'm not saying this be like, how dare you ask me what I discovered, but like in, mm. in general, I think it's important to think about that. I think about it in those terms of like, you know, uh, yeah, finding information, being able to share it and building on that, I think is a, a way to think about that too, especially in the case of, uh, you know, work like mural tremises. Mm, yeah, yeah, I, I get it. Language is important, and uh, the way we frame things uh, does make a difference. But I, I don't know her stuff, so I am definitely going to look that up. That looks, that sounds like kind of intense, but also really interesting. It's incredible, and you know, some of the stuff is very directly about that. Like she made another game that you know also takes place in the island, and there's like, uh, I think you go to the plantation that was in the game Freedom. Like there's all these parallels. But then she also made like a couple erotic games, and there's some interesting stuff in there about gender and race. And uh, no, it's, it's a fascinating career that I'm, I'm so glad is getting more attention uh, in the last decade or so. Hmm. Cool. I I think I, I've talked to you about everything that I wanted to. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to, to bring up? Anything you wanted to talk about? I don't know if there is a way we could talk about MAGFest, which is something I'm very excited about. I can't really talk about it as like a representative of MAGFest, but the stuff we've been doing with history presentations there has been super, super exciting. And I just love sharing about it. Well, I can ask you, how about you tell me about the the cool things you've been doing at MAGFest? (laughs) Thank you for asking. (laughs) Um, So I should preface saying I'm not speaking as like a representative of MAGFest during this. Um, Sorry, Deb, if I'm off brand on any of this, Uh, but... So at MAGFest, so uh, MAGFest is a gaming event in Maryland that I volunteer with. It's about 24,000 people. It's pretty big, which is exciting. It's a very community-oriented event. There's not like a big show floor. It's a lot of um, the community putting on an event for itself. And a big part of what we do, which is so unique, is there is an academic panel track um, at MAGFest. We're bringing like game studies people to talk about. Yeah, just, you know, academic approaches to things. And it's so exciting to see those coexisting alongside the panels where, like, you know, people scream at weird games. Like, it's so cool to have that that uh, contrast, that, not contrast necessarily, but just having all that stuff coexisting. Um, what I'm especially proud of is in the last couple of years, I have helped out uh, for curating uh, historical content about, like, you know, game history studies for MAGFest. And the extent to which that has really blossomed in the last couple of years has been incredible. And I think it's it's been great because... I feel like at a lot of, and again, speaking for myself and not for MAGFest with this, I think a lot of, 
you know, retro game events, I think, can kind of tread a lot of water. And like we've been talking about, you know, revisiting history that's not talked about so much. And I think a lot of the, you know, retro game culture focused events can, you know, kind of be revisiting a lot of the same stuff. And I think what's exciting is that we've managed to carve out a space for talking about untold history, histories that are not well known, uh, talking about them from a critical perspective. It's exciting that there is room at game events to be able to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm often looking at what other events may be in the area I want to go to, and like I just haven't been super inspired by a lot of stuff. Again, speaking for myself and not MacFest, um, I just, you know, it's things that haven't totally clicked with my sort of, you know, weird worldview in a lot of this, but it's been so exciting that, you know, at this event, at a, you know, a fan-focused event with this, like, kind of experimental active community, um, they're not experimental, like, the whole community, but it, MagFest is kind of about, like, experimentation and trying new things, that we've been able to find room for critical history like this, I think is super exciting. Um, I think it's something I, I would hope and love to see in more places, being able to bring in the voice of people who do, like, historical research, to talk to events and, you know, not just, um, you know, revisiting the games from just like, uh, you know, a consumer standpoint. I think it's super exciting to be able to do that. I'm so proud of what we've done in the last couple of years with it. Uh, and I think it's worth trying to find, you know, more spaces where academics and historians can interact with the community. I think that's what makes it so exciting. Um, one of our panels was saying that, you know, having a room where you speak to a hundred people for a game convention isn't really a huge thing, but, for like an academic historian like that's awesome like being able to talk with 100 members of the general public about your research is so exciting mm. um so no it, it's i'm i'm proud of what we've been able to do i'm proud of how the uh, the the academic track is called uh, mages it's the music and games educational symposium uh, <laughs> i'm very proud of what mages has been able to do over the years in terms of advancing that conversation uh, i know it's, this is a little disconnected from the obscuratory and stuff but it's been kind of a big part of my life for the last couple of years and i think it, it's exciting to just be able to continue to find ways in person to explore some of those ideas about uh you know untold history mm. yeah and it's all connected really and actually on a related note um, you've been to i think a couple of mysterium fan conventions Oh, yes, I have. Oh, my goodness, Mysterium. Oh, I love Mysterium. <laughs> yeah, can, can you tell us a bit about what they're like? Oh, man, so Mysterium uh, is the missed fan convention that has been going on since, I think, 2000, and it rules. Uh, it is this relatively small, it's like, you know, at peak, it's like 100 people usually. Uh, on some of the big years, like this year, it was in Spokane at Cyan's headquarters, and that was like closer to, you know, over 200 people. Uh, but it is this fairly niche convention where Mist fans get together and talk about Mist. And what I think is really lovely about it is the extent to which it has sort of blossomed into almost like a family reunion tone uh, in the way that it's done. That it's like it's this community that has been continuing on uh, despite uh, you know there not being a Mist game since 2005. Um, there was, for background, there was a Mist MMO that uh, I don't think the the multiplayer part officially left like the beta stage, but eventually they managed to get their own like servers online later on after uh, Ubisoft canceled it. But uh, you know, this is a convention of folks who you know love the Mist MMO, which is kind of amazing. Which again, there hasn't really been content for in years and years, but this community is still thriving. It is. I love the community focus. I love that it is. It is one of the most like inclusive, welcoming events I have been to. 
I, I just think it's kind of amazing that it's this community that has really persisted and reinforced each other. And I think it really goes back to what we were saying about experiences with these things mattering, that it is folks who, you know, Cyan used to have an official chat room on their site. It was Cyan Chat. Actually, not sure if that was official or if it was just like a, you know, large unofficial group. I'm actually not sure, but it's amazing to see how that is maintained in a physical space like this. I think it was so clear uh, this year, this last year, it was in Spokane, Washington. We went to Cyan's headquarters. Uh, Rand Miller was there. It was great. There was a cookout. It was a lot of fun. And it was just amazing to see how this, the history of this developer, which is still around through these just unusual circumstances, how their work and career has intersected with the lives of these people who have been affected by their games. And it was really kind of overwhelming to be at like the physical nexus of that and to see the inner, you know, like, like fan developer interactions a lot of the times can feel kind of like one directional, you know, getting Todd Howard's autograph on something, which I say having Todd Howard's autograph on something <laughs> um, benefits of living in DC. Uh, but it was amazing to see just kind of the two-way exchange and how they shaped each other's lives, just existing in a physical space and not just in the abstract. It was really kind of powerful. And you, you don't get that every year because, you know, sometimes Mysterium is it's actually going to be in Washington, D.C. this year, which I'm very excited about because it means I don't have to fly there to go there. Um, but it's, you know, when, it's this, when you just have a smaller community gathering, it's one thing, but when, you ha- when you're interacting with developers in that way where it's like the people who are, you know, made mist or made abduction or the new cyan games are just attending the convention for fun like uh marty o'donnell the he was one of the sound designers on riven and he's the composer of halo mm. he was just at mysterium he was just there and i asked him I was like is this cool to be able to just like go to a convention and not have people mob you and just be able to like hang out and he was like yeah it's like it's neat it's like i like that it's a community <laughs> and it just it must be such a nice change of pace then from going to like you know, PAX or GDC or something. And so I think it's going off what we were saying about community experiences mattering. I think Mysterium is really a fascinating, you know, live example of what that looks like. Yeah, I'd love to go there one day. If I'm I'm ever in the States when there's one about to happen, I will definitely try to make it. So I will say that if you go to Mysterium, you have to be like well-versed in your mist lore. There (laughs) is... So, okay... Brief tangent, Arena, this is not what the podcast is about, but um, one of the things that happens in Mysterium is there's often puzzles that you solve as a group, and like as you solve them, you get tokens, which you can then trade in for things later on in the event. And one of them, I have a picture somewhere of it, was we got a sheet, and it was called Lore Master, and it was like, what are the Denis calendar dates that this happened? It's like, the fall of King Runeref. What year was that? Like, Jesus Christ. It was like, just, it was like two dozen dates and it was like in the year 5000 king so-and-so came into power and like obviously it was not totally not a joke but it was like it was just it there there's an, a degree of that like it's not an event where you go and people quiz you on the hall of kings in uru like you're not going to get that kind of thing but it is also where it's like people who have been immersed in the lore for a long time and are having a lot of fun with it and have like made their own tabletop game around the mythology of mist it's it just it's really fun to see people who share that interest in that game world all gathering together in something that I think a lot of people tend to write off. Uh, I think you know the Mist games are pretty fantastic, but I think it's incredible to see the level of depth and passion people have about it. Uh, someone translated a Red Robin menu into the Denis language just because they could, <laughs> and 
and they just brought it and had it there. It's like, hey, check this out. It's like, you know what? This rules. This is fantastic. This is the greatest event. <laughs> yeah, that, that's awesome. I, I think I'd be really intimidated going there, but I'd, I'd also love that it's small scale and all these people are just geeking out on something. Oh, every, everyone is kind and welcoming. You can get yeah. as involved with it as you want to. Uh, they have a little table set up of all the like arts and crafts and like writing people have done around Mist, and that's always really cool. And like, I I love Mist. I am not as into the lore as a lot of people are. I know there's like a guy there uh, who's like a Denis linguistic. It's like I'm not quite at that level, but yeah, it's great to just see that and just like see the the passion people have around it. It's. Uh, I think community history is something that's kind of undervalued in game history. I think we think about it sometimes in terms of like maybe like the fighting game community. There's a lot of focus on uh, MMOs. There tends to be some, you know, oral histories of communities, but I think it's worth looking at something like Mysterium or fan forums and, you know, paying attention to that too, because recurring theme of this uh, podcast, you know, experiences matter. Yeah, and that that reminds me actually of a, a couple of my favorite articles that I've ever done have been focused on communities. So uh, six years ago, I think, I did a story for Eurogamer called Keeping the Game Alive. It was about people who were still playing Championship Manager season 2001-2002, which is significant <laughs> because that's the one that was made free. Uh, uh. So like several years later, they... Of all the games that they have in their series, that's the one they said, you can now download this free. And there's a community of people who still today are playing this game all the time and releasing their own data updates so that they can get like 32-year-old Lionel Messi or whatever his current age is. <laughs> and, and, you know, all these current players, that they, they have the up-to-date teams, up-to-date players, they do their own um, their own attributes, like they figure it out. <laughs> and they try to hack hack in updates to the way the leagues are structured and the rules of the game because uh, soccer has changed over 20 years and and they're still playing it's it's phenomenal and then that's, an, that's amazing there's another one i did uh for ars technica with uh grand theft auto 5 at uh, the community that was trying to solve all the mysteries in the game and it was amazing just talking to them about how deep things got and how they got into this uh, back and forth with the developers where they discover something and theorize about what it means. And then the developers would actually sneak something new into the game. <laughs> <laughs> After, So they'd clearly be reading the fan theories and they'd keep adding more stuff to the game. So this history in the making was going on. It was really cool. That's really great. And I think a lot of the time we, we tend to focus on that kind of thing only from like a gawking angle where it's like, well, look at this weird thing the community did. But there's always this kind of thing happening. There's always like, I think when we were talking about, like when you were talking about the championship game, like in terms of like Doom modding or something like that, or people who are keeping games alive just years and years later through mods, through sort of appropriating it into something new, like that's always happening. That's always ongoing. I think it's it's something that's undervalued. I think when we talk about to the extent that we do talk about like game history, it is often focused on the developers. And I think it is totally worth looking at the communities that receive games and how they approach them. Like that's, that's got the championship thing. That's amazing. Like I always wondered if like there are people still playing Madden on the original Xbox, 
and I guess it's easier when it's a PC game that kind of, you know, allows itself to be, uh, you know, compatibility and whatnot, but, uh, no, yeah, that, that's amazing. There's also, I I don't know if you've heard about this, but Tecmo Super Bowl. um, Oh yeah. The the people who mod it with like new players and yeah. Yeah. yeah, Every year they release a new update. It's this, there's this whole like event based around it now that every year these guys, they, they update the game and then they have some tournaments. <laughs> that that's really amazing, and I think I don't know it's it's fascinating the degree to which a lot of these things are not open infrastructures. Like I think about you know something uh, you know that has a built-in map maker or something like or Doom, where there are intended to be modding tools versus people just feeling so passionate about Tech Mobile they continue to update it every year. Like that's a non-trivial amount of work to do that. That's amazing, or just the ways that like. Uh, Mario World, like the way that, like at, at uh, games done quick events, like that they're now being, you know, bringing like ROM hacks that are extremely difficult. Like I think that is as much a chapter of Mario World as much as like the story of how Yoshi came into existence. Like I think that is as much a part of the story of that game. Mm. Yeah, it, it's it's the more challenging part of doing games history, I think, because it, it's hard to get these people to tell their stories. It's hard to sometimes even just get started with a conversation. But it's so valuable to to understand how people play games and how they reframe and recontextualize games through their modifications. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about people not being identified or perhaps not wanting to associate with something necessarily. Like if, you know, you're... There was... What was the... There was an amazing article recently, um, published by Microsoft actually, about the the Halo collection they're coming out with uh, on PC now, and they interviewed a bunch of folks in the community uh, about you know what sort of modding things they want. And so they published an interview, and it was with people who admitted to being like Xbox hackers <laughs> and about like how they modded Halo Two back in the day and got banned from Xbox Live. And this was published on an official Microsoft website. It's just, it's fascinating to me, like, to the extent to which a lot of the, like, community game behavior, like, I I understand not wanting to be identified with it and, like, wanting to retain your privacy in a lot of these cases. It's fascinating how it looks to try to document something like that to something that is, you know, to an extent illegal in some parts. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's fascinating. And I think that's um, understandably tricky to talk about and write about and get people to talk about. Hmm. I, I don't. It's. I don't even want to frame it as get people to talk about because that sounds like you know, like coercing them, like holding them under a sink <laughs> and trying to get them to talk about their illicit Xbox modding days. No, it's it's totally fascinating, and I agree. It's 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 difficult to capture that or figure out the right way to frame or discuss something like that. Hmm. And, and there's actually also I just remembered there's a guy who um, was big, a big name in the. Uh, the wares scene of like go back 30 years the the wares scene of the 80s and early 90s um where people are hacking hacking commercial games and redistributing them with their mm. own custom intros uh one guy who was a big deal in that is apparently a senator now in america and he oh, yeah. he's he's run away from that history he denies that he ever did it but his buddies over in europe are like yeah that's him <laughs> It's a, you're talking about Beto, right? From Texas? Yeah. Yeah, I think he, he didn't 
he didn't win Senate. He did run for president, but like either way, it was like someone who's like a figure in the U.S. political scene, and he was yeah, he was part of a wares group or something. And that's like I think about that a lot. The extent to which you know something like the Mario fan game community I was in, like we don't necessarily want that following us for our entire lives, and just you know how how you, you approach something like that—that's historically interesting, but also not wanting to cause harm through documenting it, and that's difficult. Um, I know I had a really weird experience a couple years ago. Uh, there was a, a game engine I was really fascinated with. I used as a kid. It was the the official Hamster Republic RPG creation engine. Uh, it was it was, it's a great. <laughs> it was a dumb. It's always as a guy's like uh, fake company or whatever it was called the Hamster Republic. So it was the Hamster Republic's RPG creation engine. Uh, but it was like a DOS engine for making like Final Fantasy four type games, and I was fascinated by it and. Um, I'm even kind of I feel weird talking about this a little bit, but uh, essentially it was I being the naive, overzealous, we have to save everything guy before I started to think more critically about these things. You know, went to the community and was like, "Hey, we should be archiving this stuff. What do you think?" And someone was so upset by the idea that they went back and deleted everything they had ever uploaded to the community uh, because they were so upset by the idea that their things would live on outside their control. Hmm. Um, it, you know, I, I think that was at a point where I was not thinking about that so much. And I, I do feel weird about that. And that's when I was talking about, you know, people being entitled to their privacy and being overzealous. It's things like that. Like, I, I, feel, I still feel, you know, really weird and mixed about that. But it's, it's worth it's worth thinking about that. That, like, you know, some history, it's, it's okay to let it go and to let it die. And that sometimes people might be okay with that. And, mm. you know, having to selectively approach things that way. Mm. And there's this weird element of consent that that we all tend to ignore, but actually we should be thinking about more, about whether people actually consent to their stuff being saved and their stories being told. Yeah, I, I, always, I always get worried when archiving is used as a weapon. Uh, archiving, you know, being like people capturing things in the Internet Archive or, you know, other similar archive type sites. And it always worries me when I see those being used as ways to, you know, to amplify harassment or to retain information that people want taken down. And that's really frustrating. There is an obligation to document things that are historically important. There's, you know, to go all Starfleet, you know, there's an obligation to the truth to an extent, but like, do no harm is a really important guiding principle in a lot of this. And I think, again, as someone who has in the past stepped past this occasionally, I think it's it is worth thinking about that. I think when people, you know, when you're uploading like mass archives of commercial games, I think there's, you know, less of an argument about harm in some cases. And, you know, there are some exceptions in a lot of in some outstanding cases. But when you think more and more about how history and these kind of things are about people, it's about their experiences, it's about, you know, the things they made and interacted with. You don't want to be in a scenario where you're hurting people doing this kind of thing. And sometimes, you know, there are, difficult truths and things out there that, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about, but a lot of times you can also be negligently hurtful about these things. And I think for, for some people, there's not, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's intentional harm or not. And it's worth thinking, I think with, um, with game preservation stuff, there's such a focus sometimes on commercial games and like, you know, tracking down lost games, or whatnot that we don't think about that too much, but especially as we start focusing on people, like I think there is, 
a real possibility for harm. And, you know, I, I think about some of those experiences a lot and um, it's worth reflecting on, I think. Mm. Uh, so uh, I guess kind of moving towards wrapping up, um, do you have any distinct or specific plans for the, the future of the Obscuratory or your games history research more broadly? Uh, well, the Obscuratory, I, I want to keep doing it. Um, I've set myself, I don't know if I'll keep to this, I guess now I'm saying on a podcast, I guess it's, it's official, but I, I had set myself years ago, it's like when I write about 500 games, I'll stop. And I'm at like 220 right now or something, so still got a while to go on that one. But no, I, I, I honestly, I, I like keeping plans open, not in the sense that I don't like making long-term plans, but I like kind of being able to follow wherever I go on a lot of this stuff. Uh, there is a new research thing I've gotten very excited about wanting to do in the past couple days um, about some other weird section of Maxis that I'm super excited to dive into. And maybe that'll go somewhere, maybe it won't. Maybe that's going to take up my entire year. And again, going off what I was saying earlier, I realized that is you know a, a privileged position to be in, that I don't have to you know, write what's present or current or urgent, or I'm not, you know, having to pursue tenure and get out, you know, some kind of focused research topic. I realize that that's a, you know, a rare luxury to have, but I think I, I purposely like not having super long-term plans because I like seeing where things take me in the near term. I think that, you know, can sometimes reflect negatively in the way I write and that I tend to be focused on individual games or companies and don't often have a broad perspective trying to write about like multimedia as a movement. I tend to write about a lot of individual things and I know that's that's an idiosyncrasy of the way I write. Mm. Um, but I like kind of being open with that stuff. But I think whatever I want to go to, you know, I, I want to focus on something that makes me a little more curious. Um, I think I have always, I've realized that the stuff I love in games writing and game criticism history is the stuff that leads you away from games. There was a great panel at Magfest this year about uh, uh, Chex's Quest, but the focus of it was thinking about it in the context of serial prizes. And there were just <laughs> long excursions about the history of serial prizes. And it was like, this is cooler than Chex's Quest. I want to learn more about this. So I get excited when there's anything that can lead away from just hyper focusing on the game itself and like, you know, recursively talking about games as a medium and moving towards like, what other ideas it connects to and what weird path it sends me down. Uh, one of my other weird side hobbies is I am obsessed with theme parks. I think they are absolutely fascinating. Just the way that there are these constructed environments. And I think the way that intersects with like game level design and game narrative design is super interesting. I just, I love anything that can start with a kernel and what's in a game and just kind of lead out somewhere else. Kind of like how I, yeah, I took your question and I'm now going in a totally different direction with it. But I guess if I have a long-term plan, it's really that it's continuing to find stuff that excites me. I think whenever I've gotten nervous about the Obscuratory and what the future of it is, it's been at a point where I feel restless, where I feel like I'm just kind of treading ground. There is that amazing David Bowie quote that was going around after he passed away that was about like the right place to be is like when you walk out into the water and your feet are just not touching the four. It's like, that's where you get exciting stuff done. I, I kind of, I always want to be the same way and just be moving to something that is slightly outside my comfort zone and pushes me to something else. Mm. That's a very vague way of talking about my long-term plans, but that's uh, truthful, I think. Mm. That's a nice thing to end on as well. My thanks again to Phil for sharing his stories and insights. If you'd like to follow his research and writing on obscure and unknown games, head to obscuratory.com. 
That's O-B-S-C-U-R-I-T-O-R-Y dot com. Or follow him on Twitter at Obscuratory. As a reminder, this interview is part of a new series I'm running alongside the usual documentary and narrative style stuff. If you have any suggestions or requests for people you'd like to hear me talk to, hit me up on Twitter at LifeAndTimesVG or via email on Richard at LifeAndTimes.Games. And as always, remember, you can support my work through paypal.me slash or patreon.com slash lifeandtimesofvideogames. I'll be back shortly with a new episode of the main show in what will be the season finale. And I hope uh, a really fun reprieve from the scary stuff going on in the world right now. And then I'll be back a little later after that again with another interview and some other things. In the meantime, take care of yourselves and each other. I'll see you.